2019 and we are coming back to you with talk for freedom 2018 was a great year for us we had uh, 16 episodes and um, we are on itunes and google play so we appreciate everyone that was listening in 2018 and that is back with us in 2019 we have some great exciting um, content for you this year all in uh, regards to awareness for human trafficking we also want to thank those who have been able to rate us um, online we have a 5.0 rating on itunes so continue rating us we want to know your feedback your comments your questions um we we definitely care about your interaction but today we have an exciting topic and we have uh chuck with us as well hey how you doing and we have uh ali with us hi everyone and so we're going to talk a little bit about um ali's job what she does and so i'll i'll bring it over to chuck if he wants to uh, introduce her Sure. Thank you, Caesar. So I'm Chuck Paul, as you know, with Roy Moss Youth Alternatives, and I had the opportunity today to talk to Allie Franklin. Mm-hmm. So my friend Allie is awesome, mm-hmm. but she's going to tell you a lot about what she does and why she does it. So Allie, can you just tell us a little bit about why you do what you do? Yeah, sure. So the main reason why I do what I do is to be a voice for the voiceless. Um, being a sex trafficking victim, I was trafficked uh, by gang members for eight and a half years, and I just can't imagine not getting through all that and not doing something to help those that I've left behind. Well, that's awesome, Allie. So, Allie, how are you fighting human trafficking today? Sure. So, I work I work at a lot of different levels. I, I work with numerous and various stakeholders at a national, uh, state level, as well as local levels. Um, I uh, do a lot of legislative work um, and just raising awareness. So, some of the legislative efforts that I do at a local level, currently, um, the organization that I'm with, Texas Criminal Justice Reform, is really connecting the dots between the criminalization of victims um, and their trauma and how it's forcing them into the criminal justice system and that's including sex trafficking victims so um, our organization's uh, efforts as far as that um, is prostitution reform and demand legislation um, and I'm hoping to really get some some backing behind this this session um, currently uh, in my opinion the whole purpose of demand um, deterrence or demand legislation or demand tactics is really to end the purchase of sex um so i don't feel that any kind of sex should be traded bartered or sold um and so that's really the the purpose of demand legislation this session Uh, but also allowing individuals that don't self-identify as trafficking victims that might be prostituted um to get lower penalties on those charges so ali just, you know, for our mm-hmm. listeners that aren't familiar with sure. it, let's kind of break it down a little bit. Sure. Um, I have a lot of friends that are survivors. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest problems they have is, is that mm-hmm. they have a problem getting a job after they right. get out of, mm-hmm. out of exploitation. And then they have a problem getting housing and all those services. Can you explain a little bit why my friends have all these problems? Yeah, and I have the same issues, right? So one of the problems with our criminal justice system is that we're responding to individuals' victimization in a punitive approach. So what happens is, for example, myself is not only was I my trafficker's um, prostitute, right? But because they were gang members, I purchased all his drugs, sold all his drugs, and also took the penitentiary risk for his drugs. So with that came prison. 
prison, right? Or in going to jail, whatever that might be. And so what happens is instead of getting connected to individualized services that I needed to get out of that exploitive situation, instead now I'm constantly getting felonies, right? So now that I'm out, even seven years out, I have a difficulty getting a job. I've had a 4.0 in um, a university and they told me you can't apply for this program because you can't get a license. Um, you know, I've had uh, insurance rates on my car go up because they check my felonies on my criminal record. Um, I can't, um, uh, my APRs on my credit cards are actually higher because I'm a higher risk because I have so many felonies. Uh, I mean, there's numerous, numerous things. I know that when I first got out, um, I fought tooth and nail to get what I call the hood, get out of the hood. And I fought tooth and nail to get out of there, but the only person that would rent to me was in the hood, right? So now, now, now you've just put me back in the same, same environment that I just got worked so hard to get out of, right? So I'm sitting there in, in Fifth Ward in Houston, Texas with all the drug dealers, all the individuals that are being prostituted, all the gang members, the same place that I fought so hard to get out of. Um, and so it's just, it's just another chain around my neck, right? So you're actually, actually exasperating my issue worse by putting a criminal record on me and actually tethering me to a life of sexual exploitation. So you mentioned something that um, a lot of our audience that is new to human trafficking that's I'm just getting to know what's going on sure the crazy thing that you just said is how your record affects the, like the APR on your credit card it affects right. your auto insurance mm-hmm. um, renters insurance whatever you have that's crazy I that never even crossed my mind that it would have that much of an impact right and and the worst part about it too is say an individual gets out of sexual exploitation and wants to find some type of sustainable life not just exist but live right so that's more mm. than just working at mcdonald's because to live you would have to you know work three jobs to live not exist above poverty line so when individuals actually want to increase um you know their their ability to increase their life right is with sustainable living and jobs that pay those type of incomes and so those individuals, if they have drug charges, can't even get student loans, mm-hmm. right? Wow. How can you do that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and that's the thing is like my friends expressed to me mm-hmm. is that it's so very hard is that they're mm-hmm. trying really, very hard to change their life. Right. So while they're working through their therapy right. and while they're working through their rebuilding of who they actually are, discovering who they really are, not the right. person they were when they were exploited. Right. They feel like they keep getting hit because they get hit when they try to go get a place to live. Right. They want to better themselves by going to school and they can't even get student loans. Right. They can't get a decent job. And so right. they think about, well, back when I was in the life, uh-huh. I made a lot of money, yeah, for my trafficker. Right. But then there's the appeal of, and you want to talk about that, that other appeal. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and because I do direct services with individuals and this is a conversation that we have a lot and it's a huge, huge struggle, right? So, um, you know, because I was an addict prior to being trafficked, uh, and then I was an addict while I was being trafficked, um, more of a relapse to me was going back to the game than the drugs ever were. And because when I got out and I got a job, it only paid a certain amount of money. So I'd be working eight hours a day for $50, right? And then you take taxes out of that. And then I have a boss that's talking to me like a dog. And I'm like, 
why am I doing this, right? You know, I mean, I could go do that and make that in five minutes, right? And be okay. And so that that's the struggle that these women and, and even men, I, I work with men and transgender, this is the struggle that they have. Well, okay, so maybe I won't go back to prostitution. Maybe I'll just go dance. Can I dance? Um, you know, and, and of course that leads to exploitation as well. So that's a different conversation, but, but yeah, it is a struggle because they just can't find any kind of economic agency, um, with those barriers in place. So what type of legislation would help fix that problem where we're revictimizing survivors again and again? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. And this, uh, it goes a lot deeper than just legislation. I mean, really what the problem is, is that we are not going after the perpetrators and that's the buyers and the, the um, traffickers, right? I mean, we are working on that and moving towards that, but we're still arresting victims, right? So it, it all begins with the arrest. So unfortunately, um, you know, individuals that are prostituted are low hanging fruit. They might not get picked up for prostitution. It might be petty theft. It might be, um, you know, drug charges, whatever it might be. Um, they're low hanging fruit for law enforcement. They're targeted because they're in the lower income neighborhoods, right? Um, and that's just the unfortunate part about it, right? So that that's really where it starts. So, so legislating would be actually um, taking the state jail felony off of individuals that are prostituted. Um, because for me, after I got picked up, you know, say on my fourth prostitution, now I've got a felony, right? So you're not connecting me to services or getting to the root causes of my sexual exploitation. So when I get out, I go right back doing the same thing, right? So now, now I have eight felonies, right? Or nine. I mean, I'm pulling arrest records from DPS. Some of these women have 26 accounts, you know, on them. And they're all nonviolent charges, right? So it's not that it's it's their trauma that's fueling these behavioral health issues, right? It's it's their trauma that's <laughs> fueling their behavioral health issues. And, um, and we're criminalizing them for them. And so you're working on legislation right now mm-hmm. because I know that like last session, they mm-hmm. actually, the, the Senate actually passed a bill sure. that would have decriminalized uh, survivors right. of exploitation as long as they had engaged in some type of re- recovery program. Mm-hmm. And that didn't pass the House. That actually died in committee in the House. It died in the Senate. Oh, it died in the Senate. So I'm, I'm sorry I'm corrected. It died in the Senate. <laughs> passed the House and died in the Senate. Yeah, that's right. And, and you want to talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. And so this is the thing. And so I know that there's legislative efforts this session. I. I think that are going through and uh, I hope that it does make some headway and that's non-disclosure. So, um, and that's a lot different. The last session uh, was a set aside and that's the one that I testified on. And that is if a trafficking victim is proven to be trafficked and they have charges that they've incurred while under their trafficker, those can be set aside, which is phenomenal, right? Um, Vacature is even better, right? So um, for me, almost all my charges, I would have had nine felonies. Um, The last one was adjudicated. Um, Almost every single one of those while while I was under the oppression of my trafficker, right? So almost all of them. Um, So that would have been huge for me. So with the non-disclosure though, I mean, for me, I mean, I think it lays great groundwork, but for someone that is, in my case, has eight felonies, well, okay, so I can only, you know, I can only remove four. Well, guess what? I have four more. What what does that do for me? Nothing, you know? Um, so those are the type of things that we look at, right? Um, but also, I feel... Um, 
the important part about this conversation that's not being addressed legislatively and I hope that um, the legislative works that I am can lay groundwork on is that we're we're missing a portion of individuals that are sexually exploited but not identified as trafficking victims and those are the prostituted individuals so if you can't prove that you've been trafficked you don't have this opportunity right and and in my experience Allie Mm -hmm. And I'm, I don't let me know if you share the same one. Mm-hmm. When I talk to people that are in the sex work industry, whether it's dancing, whether it's escort services, whether it's prostitution, right. whether it's pornography, I have yet to meet one mm-hmm. that that's what they wanted to do. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I've yet to meet one that was not manipulated or felt forced or economically that was the only opportunity they had or previously had history of being abused. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why it's called exploitation, right? Right. Exploitation. It's commercial sexual exploitation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they don't they don't know they're being exploited until it's all over and done with and they've got the criminal record. Right. They've gotten out Still of jail right and they're trying to reestablish their life right. and now they know, oh, no. I was exploited. And we we tend to think of trafficking as someone in chains, but that's actually a, a misrepresentation. It is, and I and I have a huge problem with the way the anti-trafficking movement is, um, I guess, messaging this. So it leaves out um, African American women and girls. So all the the um, you know images and that you see that nonprofits use or you know different organizations uh, that are in this fight, it's generally a white girl, right, or a white woman bound up and chained up, and not that those things don't happen because they do. I mean, I was kidnapped, I was beaten, I was raped, and it's definitely every single woman that I've come in contact and man that's been in the life whether they've been trafficked or not has experienced some type of violence right Um, sexual and physical violence um, and that's just unfortunate part of the life but the more insidious part of that bondage is the the um, coercion and use of you know uh, psychological coercion right so those are the chains that that we are missing right because of the misrepresentation of, of trafficking victims and in again, mm-hmm. very familiar with the psychological manipulation that goes on. This is actually a process that one mm-hmm. trafficker can teach another trafficker how to do. Yeah, there's books on it. There's books on it. Yeah, and there's guys that make Pimping money. Kin. Right. Yeah. There's guys that make money right. selling this process online. I mean, it's broken down into in sure. a step-by-step process. You know, right. um, first getting the intrigue, then building rapport, then building affection, and then you have the final stages of enslavement. I mean, this is all almost institutionalized at this it point. It is, and it's being taught in our prison systems, mm-hmm. right? And, what, and that's the thing that's not talked about a lot either. So you bring up a good point. What is legislation doing about things like that? And and that's the unfortunate part. And it's a conversation. I just got back from D.C. and there's a great uh, documentary called The Trap. Um, and so it's done by The Guardian and some survivor sisters that I work with uh, at a national level. But we're not talking about the individuals are being trafficked in prison or recruited in prison. So I have an individual, a friend of mine um, that did 13 years um, and he was a sexual slave the entire time he was in prison. Right. Um, So he was, he was actually being trafficked for coffee and cigarettes and, you know, things like that. I mean, this is sexual exploitation. This is sex trafficking. Uh, And he actually has a groundbreaking case against the state because of that. Um, And, uh, but also too, me being uh, trafficked, and I hate to admit this, but it's a conversation we need to have is that I actually trafficked other people. So my trafficker grew me to traffic other women and I would go to jail 
and be picking up on the same things I didn't identify in myself as far as vulnerabilities, but oh, she doesn't have any place to go. Oh, she wants to get high. Oh, nobody's picking her up. Well, just come home with us. So now I just recruited someone from from within the jail or prison system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And legislatively, I know nothing that's happening. Wow. Yeah. So this is where we get to the core importance of this mm-hmm. is that, you know, because of your work, mm-hmm. because of your, your, your fantastic work going out there and speaking with people and training people, mm-hmm. um, we're getting this message out about what trafficking really is and, and right. who's being victimized. So tell us a little bit about your speaking and, and, and presentations. Sure. So I do a lot of speaking events on different levels. Um, I just, like I said, just got back from D.C. Um, sharing about the experiences of trafficking in, in prison systems, but also the comorbidity of of, of sex, sexual exploitation and drug use. And so traffickers use drugs to um, coerce and control individuals including myself so everything um that my trafficker used against me the one of the largest ones was drugs so he controlled all that right um and so those are the conversations we need to have as well and it actually needs to be a part um of our of our legislative efforts right so it's not just force fraud and coercion it's also the use of drugs um so that's one component, but I also train healthcare professionals. I train law enforcement because I was gang trafficked. Um, it's a conversation that needs to be had. Um, and, and of course, obviously looking for other signs than just beat up and, and, and bruise and, and why so many individuals when they, we go to rescue them, right? I, I train, uh, nonprofits, like why aren't they happy to be here? You know, um, and, and, and that's a conversation we need to have as well. Um, but I also do, um, you know, training uh, organizations that I go out to and speaking to them on um, the importance of trauma-informed care uh, and just giving them some tools and empowering them to make better impacts on the populations they serve as well. So, so Ali, can you just tell us as best as you, I mean, is, I know it's, it's a very long talk. It's probably a whole other segment, but can you tell us why it is so important Mm -hmm. that police officers and healthcare Mm -hmm. providers and, and, and nonprofits are aware of how to be trauma informed and understand what trafficking really is? Right. And on not just that, court officials too, right? Right. Uh, courts, judges, all those things. Um, and, and part of the problem is, is that the way that we treat victims or survivors um, is inherently uh, exploitive and, and uh, abusive, and we don't even know it, right? Because we're not practicing mindfulness. And so, um, unfortunately, trafficking victims don't respond to, I, I don't want to say normal situations the way that we want them to or expect them to um, because of all the trauma that they've been through. And so in a lot of uh, organizations or shelters that I've gone in and trained, uh, I went into a Salvation Army and trained their staff. Um, you know, these individuals have their own trauma and yet they're working with these individuals day in and day out. So maybe these people have been a, an addict at one point or sexually abused at one point or physically abused. And and a lot of times these individuals get into this line of work because of where they come from, right? Yet they still have all, all the ways that they were treated. They're treating these individuals that way. So they're actually fusing and fueling the situation and, and, and pushing that survivor or that victim further out than they are inviting them in and, and creating relationship with them mm-hmm. it's almost yeah. as if um aside from being trained on what to look for um the signs and all that stuff from trafficking it's like they have to get this 
uh, training on uh, just how to care for people, how to talk to people, like communication. Because you're right, it's a, it's usually the victims don't trust anybody because that trust has been broken, right. you know, way before with, with everything that they've gone through. Right, and that's part of the thing too, right? So most, almost every single individual that I work with, including myself. Um, you know, we were betrayed in a relationship in some sort of way, right? And so the only way to repair and rebuild that, and that's really at the heart of trauma-informed care, is through relationships, right? Healthy relationships. And, and identifying it and, and creating a space for that, right? So, um, and that's what's lacking in so many of these systems. Yep. So, and this is something I really want to get into, mm-hmm. is that, you know, we get involved with rescuing survivors, Mm -hmm. helping survivors to actually flourish if we want that. What we've got to do is we've got to stop treating them like they were treated back when they were being trafficked. Exactly. Right. Because the trafficker told them where to live. We're saying, well, you have to live at X. Right. We want to set up a system of like facilities, but it's like you have to eat at this time, wear this type of clothes, right. wear this, mm-hmm. act this way, live in this environment, and that's similar to trafficking. It is. It's it's completely controlling, and it, it's it's yes. Mm-hmm. So, if you were to set up a facility, mm-hmm. you're gonna set, say you're gonna set up a facility. You're gonna treat a survivor how they would really want to be or need to be treated, and how would you do that differently? Yeah, and, and I understand that you need to have a safe place for individuals for these healing processes, and I get it. And I've done support groups. I do support groups in child detention centers, uh, a child prison, um, I've, you know, shelters, obviously, um, safe homes. Um, and, and the unfortunate part is, is the whole reason that these individuals um, have been exploited for so long is because they've worn a mask and don't want to be vulnerable, right? Because they've been hurt so much. Yet, they can't take off the mask there because they're, you know, everything is controlled and they feel like if they take that mask off and mess up, then, you know, they're going to be reprimanded for that. Um, and so I noticed that the one thing that they appreciate is coming into my group and having it one or two hours just to be themselves. Right. And whatever that is, and just being transparent and honest. And that's really where recovery, whether it's, you know, mental health drugs or, or sex trafficking or any type of exploitation is, being able to be real and be honest about where you're at, right? So um, those are the things that really need to be addressed. And so for me, if I had a perfect place, it would it would be a place that that individual can come and go, right? Um, because you know, you for me and and I see it too. These safe homes they run, right? That's part of trauma discharge. And for me, that was my go to. Like that's the only time I felt like I had I was making a choice, my own choice, because my choices were taken from me as a kid, being sexually abused and raped for so many years. All my choices were taken from my trafficker, right? Mm-hmm. So when I get a choice, I'm going to run, right? And wow, I feel empowered. But it's also part of trauma discharge as well, right? So, um, and so when you actually contain me and tell me what to do and what to wear and what to think and what to dress and go pray, go do this, not that I'm against prayer because I'm a Christian, but these individuals need to learn how to make healthy choices in a safe place. But you're not allowing these individuals to make choices. So, and sometimes it's little things like what to wear, right? Mm-hmm. And little things like what to eat, right? Or what time to eat? Yeah, eat when you want. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and I share this a lot when I because I was trafficked for eight and a half years. The first time that I ordered food on my own at McDonald's, and I was in a treatment facility, and I'd taken a bus to go, you know, on pass or something. Um, 
for whatever reason, but I like literally was there for an hour. Like, whoa, I don't know what I want to eat. It all looks good. What do I order? I mean, I hadn't ordered my own food in eight and a half years. And it was really overwhelming in an uncomfortable situation for me because I'd never made, had a place where I could make healthy choices. And maybe they weren't always the best choices, but in fall, but still have that support, right? Um, so, yeah. And that's the importance of being trauma-informed is, is allowing someone those little yeah. choices. Right. Exactly. It's all about the choices. And But then... The ability to fall mm-hmm. if they make a wrong choice. Right. And not be judgmental. Exactly. And you can't come from a place in ju- of judgment, um, you know, if you're trauma-informed, right? And so a lot of the staff that I train at a shelter, they're like, I don't understand why they're here trying to get their lives better, and yet they're going across the street to Tent City, which is a homeless community, literally, you know, maybe... 300 feet from the shelter where everyone's getting high mm-hmm. and it's like i mean that's that's their go-to right but what are you going to do when they come back are you going to let them back in are you going to yell at them and you know chastise them or uh or just model better better choices for them you right. know how could you have done this differently what do you think would work you know right and that is just a case of loving them even through right the ups at. and downs right exactly. where you're at Right. And allowing people to make those little choices. Because like you said, you went to McDonald's, you didn't know what to order. Right. Right. And so I have girls there, you know, that are in my group that are 14, 15, that have, you know, been terribly sexually abused. Um, They've been obviously sex trafficked or they wouldn't be in my group. And they're like, well, you know, and we just talked about this. Can I be a stripper? I'm like, well, yeah, of course you can. I mean, that's your choice, you know, but these are some different alternatives that you might want to think about, but you get to make that choice. And that's the part you that know? we don't think about the people you get that, to make that choice. Yeah. Yeah. The non-experts of human trafficking, right. you want to control everything, right? right? You want to lay it all out for them because you think you know what's best for them. And you don't. When, yeah. When in reality, the emotional state that they're in mm-hmm. requires a different approach sometimes. Right. And how do you expect them to learn how to make better decisions if you don't let them make decisions? Yeah, you know, because that's where we learn and grow is by following. And so we also want to make sure that the environment that they're in in these facilities mm-hmm. is an environment that's open and welcoming. Exactly, and that's part of the problem that I see um, with the juvenile justice system, especially with kids um, that have been so trauma. I mean, just period. Anyway, but that's a different. That's a whole other episode. Um, is that we're just like the adults were arresting kids for their own victimization, right? And so all their life, they've been told, you're not worthy, you're not good, this is your fault, um, and you don't matter. And yet, so you you know, you know, take them to jail for curfew violation or stealing their mom's car. Do you know how many times I stole my mom's car? Um, but you, know, you take them to jail because they have behavioral health issues and they're acting out on that abuse, they're running from that abuse, and you put them in jail and um and then try to give them treatment and you know trauma care and yet you have them in a punitive system and they're locked down and like it's just sending them that message like you really don't matter right nothing nothing you feel nothing you say matters and so um you know and that's that's unfortunate because you're re-victimizing them so you would say that we need an environment that doesn't have any bars in the doors or windows and exactly maybe bright and kind of homey environment absolutely where they could make little choices like what like you said what to wear when to eat how to eat right. even if it's junk food right if that's what they want right yeah 
put a picture on your wall. I mean, these kids can't have any personalization. You know, they're all in the same clothes. Um, you know, they're not allowed to walk, you know, on their own. They have to be escorted with their hands behind their back. I mean, these kids have been abused. Mm -hmm. What are we doing here? And then we're telling them you're a victim. Yeah. We're here to help you. Same with adults. Right. And then not only that, you're setting those kids up for the adult juvenile, you know, the adult criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. uh, and the unfortunate part is all of those kids, for the most part, have been system involved their entire life, whether it's within the child welfare system, you know, foster care or whatnot. And because of that, they've always become institutionalized. Yeah. Where they don't know how to function outside of an institution. Right. Because they don't have any choices. They don't know how to make them. So we need to give them the opportunity to make choices in order to allow them to be, discover who they are, to be a part of the society that we want them to be. That's what we want in the end. Didn't you learn by making choices? Right. Good That's and bad? I made. What about you? Yeah, of course. And all those little things that... Did you make bad choices? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's how you learn, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's basically your, your, I think we make it harder, you know, because we know the situation that they're coming out of. We, like I said, I think we know, we think we know what the answer is, but you, you just treat them like a regular person, right. you know, and they just need love like any person needs love. They need care like any person needs care. Um, sometimes um, at a different level, but they just need that. And I, and I see a lot too that we, even in safe homes, I mean, not necessarily safe homes, but in the shelters, we want them to like be grateful that we saved them, and we want them to act perfectly, and you know, and all these things, and they're just not capable of doing that yet, you know. Right. We want them to the appreciate. Yeah, we want yeah. them to appreciate us for everything we're right. doing, and that becomes about ourselves, and it's not about them. Right. And see, and I see a lot of volunteers do that. Right. They're not. I mean, I know they're helping and they're great people, but it's a checkbox for them. Right. And and do these young people pick up on that? Yeah, they do. Of course. Well, and especially girls that have been sexually exploited and in and, and sex trafficking, because for me, my survival depended on reading people. Right. Mm -hmm. Literally my survival. And so don't think that we can't read you. Right. And mm -hmm. so any type of insincerity, whether it's a healthcare professional, say a doctor, a forensic nurse, law enforcement, any, I mean, we can pick up on all that. And it actually, I mean, and if only law enforcement knew this, or even healthcare professionals, you're actually going to have better outcomes, not just for the victim, but in, say, your case that you're trying to make, if you treat them, you know, coming from a trauma based and, and victim centered approach, you're actually going to get better results that way. Um, so, right, because you're allowing them to be them and be a part of a process, right? Yeah, empowering and, them. And what we know is, is that when a person is feeling threatened, that they're in that survival portion of their brain. Sure. And and as long as they're there, they're actually not in that rational portion of the brain, right? Where they're able to think. And then the thing is, is like timelines and details and everything else that an officer it's needs, gone. it's gone. Right. It's not totally accessible. Awkward. Right. Yeah, it can't be. Sure. And that's the other thing, too, about trauma-informed care is really understanding the brain chemistry of that. And so, um, and especially when you're working with youth because of the developmental stages of that, right? So, but I share this all the time. We forget that when we're working with adults. I mean, not only is it trauma, I mean, the brain traumatized, right? But, I mean, these, ki these women have actually, and men, have actually stopped growing emotionally, um, 
from the time that their abuse started or their drug use started. So I have, um, including myself, I've, you know, came out of the game at 36, but I had the mentality of a 12 year old or a 14 year old. Um, and that's, we miss that sometimes. This is a fascinating conversation, Ellie, and we're going to pick this up in our next episode. Great. So we're going to continue on with our conversation. So thank you so much. Caesar. you want to take us out to the next episode? Thank you, Allie, for coming out and, and sharing your story, your mission. It's it's a great one. And, um, you know, helping us understand a little bit about what's important um, when, when we're um, – trying to help victims uh, of human trafficking. And so we appreciate you audience for coming out, listening to us uh, in whatever platform you're in. Please continue to rate uh, our podcasts, whether it's on Google Play or iTunes, and leave us your comments, your questions, interact with us. We definitely want to uh, answer any questions you might have or talk through a topic that you might have. But join us in our next episode. We're going to bring Ali back. Thank you.